This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the Global Tennessee Podcast. I'm Pat Ryan. Today, we have a special edition to bring you Senator Bob Corker's remarks at the World Affairs Council's recent Foreign Policy Speaker Series. Since we're now up to episode three of our world-famous podcast, we know our legions of listeners look for new releases on every other Tuesday. But as promised, we'll provide special editions when we have timely information to share. That's the case today as we present Senator Corker's remarks and the questions and answers he took from our typically sharp audience. Our speaker series event was hosted by Baker Donaldson at their downtown Nashville Event Center, and we wish to thank them for the tremendous support to the World Affairs Council. Hat tip as well to Lori Odom and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce, also to the Center for International Business at Belmont University. We couldn't do what we do without their support. Likewise, we cannot bring you events, education outreach, distinguished visiting speakers, podcasts, weekly quizzes, and all the rest without you, the stakeholders in global literacy in our community. So please take a minute to visit tnwac.org donate. That's tnwac.org donate to send your gift to the council to make these things go. And don't forget that the council is recognized by the IRS as a 501c3 educational charity which means you should mention your gift to your accountant at the end of the year. Now, Senator Bob Corker, in his usual candid and insightful manner, discusses global issues, U.S. foreign, and a little domestic policy and challenges. This event was recorded on October 31st, 2018. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization and we're focused on education and, and educating the population of Tennessee on global events, how those global events impact everybody here in Tennessee. And our goal is to have a more enlightened and educated population so that when we go to the polls and, and make decisions, we're doing that from a basis of fact rather than opinion. Uh, we have outreach programs with high schools with uh, colleges, universities, and with the population as a whole. This is one of our, our events that is targeted to the general population. So those of you who are not members today, we certainly would encourage you to, to join. We have uh, programming uh, several events every month, uh, sometimes multiple events during the month. Uh, it's a very interesting organization, and we have a website that has all the details. It's TNWAC dot org tn world affairs council dot org so you can find all the information that's focused on that so uh before we get started here i have a couple quick comments about senator corker we uh we certainly appreciate you coming here and senator corker has been in, very involved with tennessee world affairs council as well one of the events we have is a uh, academic world quest competition for high school students where it's kind of like the old quiz bowl, if anybody remembers that from a long time ago. It's conducted throughout the, uh, the entire country. 
and the winners from Tennessee and the different states then go to D.C. for a national competition. And Senator Corker was very gracious to spend time with our delegation on, on a couple of occasions, spent time talking to the high school students, and, and Representative Cooper did the same thing uh, earlier this year. Uh, it was, you can imagine, as a high school student, to have the ability to go in and spend half an hour or an hour with, with people of this stature, that's very impressive. And we certainly appreciate everything you guys do to make that happen for us. Uh, Senator Corker's been uh, one of the senators from Tennessee since 2007. I think it was uh, 2007 was it the first year. And that happened to be about the same time Tennessee World Affairs Council was created. So we've kind of been around for the, basically the same amount of period of time in, in this arena anyway. Uh, former mayor of Chattanooga, former businessman, but today uh, is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And as such, Senator Corker certainly has some insights that uh, most of us don't have, and we're looking forward to being able to, to hear what those insights may be. But before we get to that point, we want to recognize Senator Corker for everything he has done, not only for Tennessee World Affairs Council or for the citizens of Tennessee, but also for everybody in the United States. In his role as, as the Foreign Relations Committee Chairman, uh, very, very influential, very, very important in the conduct of U.S. foreign policy around the world. And it's something that uh, I think we should all be very proud of, that a fellow Tennessean has been able to do that and represent our country so well. And in recognition of that, we have our inaugural award that uh, Logan Monday will give us a little bit more detail on that before we make the presentation. Good afternoon. Tennessee World Affairs Council 2018 Global Affairs Leadership Award is presented to Senator Bob Corker in recognition of his outstanding contributions to the security, prosperity, and standing of the United States of America while serving Tennessee as U.S. Senator, Chairman, and Ranking Member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations from 2013 to 2018. The U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations is charged with leading foreign policy, legislation, and the debate in the Senate while upholding their congressional responsibilities. Senator Corker distinguished himself as chairman and charting a course for U.S. foreign policy by, among many other achievements, holding the committee above political rancor, creating a national dialogue for the Iran nuclear deal, co-authoring punishing sanctions on the Russian Federation for its intervention in Ukraine and interference in our U.S. elections, while working tirelessly to put an end to human trafficking and modern slavery. Simply put, Senator Corker put into practice what American leadership should be in the world and for Tennessee. For his exceptional service to the people of Tennessee and the United States of America, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is pleased to present Senator Corker the 2018 Global Affairs Leadership Award. Signed on this date by Patrick Ryan and Jim Shepard, President and Chairman of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. me today and being honored me in this way and for all of you gathering I'm a little out of practice I haven't been giving many speeches lately <laughs> thankfully, thankfully. Uh, it's great to be with all of you and I do look forward to a conversation today I did what uh, this weekend was kind of interesting and someone sat me at birthday party at the time Beecham and I kind of had a, had a conversation he first spoke uh, about his book 
And then uh, we had uh, sort of an informal conversation and then some questions from the audience. And as I sat there listening to him, I thought, my gosh, um, here's a person who's a historian, um, knows so much about all that's happened, especially with American presidents, but so much about foreign policy. And I just uh, realized that we couldn't have been different people. Um, I know nothing about history. Um, other than, than almost what I've learned in, in place. I'm kind of a journeyman, on-the-job training, and that's uh, really what has happened with me in foreign policy. And so I don't go out giving uh, highbrow speeches. I basically have learned on the ground, traveling to 78 or, nine, 78 or 9 countries on your behalf, some of them over and over again, because just like in your businesses, you spend 80% of your time on problems and 20% of your time on opportunities. So I'm glad to be here today to have a conversation. And before we move to that, I did want to acknowledge that Jim Cooper is here. One of, the, one of the questions, Jim, that came up in the audience this weekend was, um, remember when Senator X uh, on the other side of the aisle did something to you um, after y'all had worked together for months to try to cause a bill to become law, aren't you upset with him? And I said, uh, actually, no, I love him. And uh, you know, I've just found that when you're trying to deal with your nation's problems or your state's problems, that things like that that come up, you just kind of put them aside and, and realize that somebody's gonna surprise you in a good way uh, right around the corner. Um, I've never had any negative surprises with Jim Cooper ever, and uh, I just want to say to all of you, I love working with Jim Cooper, and I'm glad that he represents uh, Nashville in the way that he does. Um, he's a little bit more of a curmudgeon than I am, <laughs> and I'm kind of an internal optimist, and so we balance each other out and make a pretty good combination, but you know, I think about being in the House in the minority. Uh, would make you a little bit of a curmudgeon. And then to be in a party where he's probably one of the most rational people there and has to deal with uh, some of the things that they go on there, that would make you that way. But Jim, it's good to be with you and I look forward to, to uh, working with you in the private sector uh, as we move ahead. I've served with three presidents. Um, each of them were very, very different. Uh, when I came into the Senate, uh, let me let me digress. A reporter came up and mentioned something to me a minute ago. Eric did. Uh, I remember 12 years ago, this moment in time, uh, a week before the election, when you had no idea who was going to win. And uh, my heart goes out to those who are in the middle of this. Um, it is just an incredible period of time. And as I understand it, the race is pretty close. I don't know. You know what the internal polling is, you know? You want to share with very close? <laughs> but uh, it is so nice to come here with not a trouble in the world. <laughs> not to be thinking about that. I remembered on election night, my hometown is Chattanooga. As you know, I came over this morning. Uh, it rained like the Dickens in Hamilton County on election day, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be the difference in the race. And, and uh, anyway, I, I'm not thinking about those things today. I'm just thinking about having fun with y'all. I've, I've served under three presidents, with, with three presidents, not under. Uh, George Bush um, uh, was a person who certainly had no intentions of being a divisive president. Uh, he ran as a compassionate conservative. Uh, 
9-11 changed the trajectory of his presidency dramatically. I think the thing that took the wind out of his sails more than that, though, was Katrina, where people viewed him as a racist, uh, when that couldn't be farther from the truth. He's a person with a big heart, and I think he came into office truly to unify our country. And by the time I got there, the Iraq War had become very, very unpopular. And one of the first big debates that we had on the Senate floor uh, was whether we would surge in Iraq to try to overcome what had happened and to try to salvage something good uh, after all the hundreds of billions of dollars and so many lives had been lost and so many so many bodies maimed. And so that was my introduction to the United States Senate, was beginning that debate. Uh, Barack Obama served on the Foreign Relations Commission. And uh, like you, I'm sure when you go to the grocery store, or the drugstore, or the cleaners, it seems that you bump into the same people over and over again because your schedules end up being the same. Uh, well, with him, it seemed like we always went to vote at the same time why that happened and so we'd ride that little tram that many of you have seen under under the capitol to vote and we'd be talking and and uh you know so i was able to talk with him during the time that he was thinking about running for president and you know there was such a movement behind him i don't think he had a choice i don't think uh, when you have that many people wishing for you to do it he did obviously and i became uh, uh you know i was very involved in foreign policy and, and very involved with their administration. Um, I think he ran not hoping to be, a, I think he ran on hope actually and, and wanted to be a unifying president and obviously ended up being a very divisive president by the time it was all said and done. And now we have, uh, we have President Trump uh, who obviously, uh, I say this just as an observation, uh, where division is actually a governing strategy, right? Um, and so it's, it's interesting to, to watch how the evolution of that has been. Um, the foreign policy pieces, you know, it's interesting, really, we haven't changed that much. The rhetoric around foreign policy has changed a great deal, obviously. But the direction of where we're going uh, hasn't changed quite as much as, as gets amplified. Um, we're still doing the same things with NATO. Actually, we're doing things in Eastern Europe in a better way than we've done them in the past, although the rhetoric around NATO has not been something that, that I've appreciated. Um, if you look at the fact that uh, President Trump wanted to, to leave Afghanistan and yet we're still there doing the things that we were doing uh, when he came in, if you look at Syria, we've actually plussed up, right? Um, one of the things that the Trump administration has done to their credit is they've actually given the generals the ability to do the things that um, they were hired to do. Uh, under President Obama, again, a friend of mine, this is just an observation, everything that was done uh, had to be laid out. There were caveats. Uh, there were all kinds of discussions, and so the military in some ways was somewhat frozen. Um, and I will say that uh, this may be a plus or a minus, uh, depending on how you look at it. Uh, our current president has just said to the military leaders, hey, go, go get the bad guys and don't give me the details. And so they, they aren't, and they are. And, uh, and so Syria's actually uh, gone in a much 
much better way as it relates to routing out ISIS. We still, in my opinion, uh, have a moral stain on our own country for the way that it's going to end up and for not intervening at a time where we could have made a difference. But again, if you look at the trajectory of what we've done in Syria, the trajectory of what we've done uh, in Iraq, where we now have stayed and now had a successful election, if you look at the trajectory in Afghanistan, um, it, they're very similar to what each president began, what a president continued, and what is still happening today. Obviously, the rhetoric around uh, the United States and our involvement in the world is very different. And, and yet, as I look at the activities that are underway, um, many of the activities are still continuing. Uh, some of that is for consumption here in the United States. Uh, it's actually for domestic consumption, let's face it. But we really haven't changed uh, a great deal where our foreign policy emphasis has been. When I came in, the, the whole focus on Russia was different than it is today. Um, Russia obviously has shown itself to be a, 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 a bad player in the, in the world politics. Everything that we do, they try to counter these days. Um, we did have a president who came in, again, rhetorically, in a very different place than the last president. Actually, the last president had hoped to build a bridge with Russia. It uh, didn't pan out so well. But in, in this particular case, Congress had to step in. Jim and I both voted for a piece of legislation that overwhelmingly passed that forced the administration uh, to lay sanctions on Russia and to put them in a place uh, where the world is ostracizing, if you will, uh, their malign activities as it, ways, as it relates to Western democracies. Uh, China obviously has been on the rise. Uh, it's been a, been a much bigger concern to our country. Uh, they've tried to fill the gap that our rhetoric, our rhetoric is leaving behind as it relates to us being, if you will, the leader, uh, the leader of the world. We still are. The rhetoric's just not the same as it used to be. But uh, but uh, China obviously. But, and they're going to end up likely uh, being a much larger uh, GDP than we are. And so over time, we've got to deal with that. History's been replete with countries who end up over time uh, displacing another country as uh, the leader of the world, if you will, and sometimes that leads to war. That's something, obviously, we don't want to see happen. Um, with that, let me just uh, stop, if I would, if I could, and, and take questions from you. Uh, my point is that in spite of the rhetoric, the United States still uh, is carrying out the same types of foreign policy that began, uh, that, that were there in place when I began as a United States Senator. The rhetoric is very different. Uh, the communication to the American people is very different. Uh, the communication to the world is actually different, but if you look at the places uh, that we have been involved militarily or where we have strategic interests, we're still, we're still carrying out much of the same policies. And with that, let me just stop and uh, take any questions that you might have. Yes, sir.
Senator, one would assume that the North Koreans have been busy building additional nuclear weapons and ICBMs every month since the summit. And as time goes by, time's not on our side uh, for any negotiations. What are your expectations there? What was the last sentence? What are your expectations for negotiations with North Korea? So, look, uh, I think everyone knows that Singapore was basically a, a press conference. Uh, nothing of material nature uh, happened. Um, it was more of a meeting. Um, but look, I'm glad it took place. Um, I do think that it's, it's obviously caused tensions in the region to diminish. Uh, the new envoy that we have that used to be an executive at Ford Motor Company is a, is a real serious person. Um, he's somebody that I think if he came and talked to you about what he was doing, he would be incredibly impressed. Just came in about 30 days ago into our office to give us another download. Um, they're looking for North Korea to take some steps that are, that are real. I know they've announced that they may close a certain facility that they act like might be their central facility. It's not, by the way, but uh, at least it's something that uh, would demonstrate that they're willing to, to begin to take some steps to denuclearize. Um, I have a lot of fight, faith in Mike Pompeo, just for what it's worth. He's a serious guy. He was kind of a Tea Party, right-wing kind of congressman from Kansas. Um, and he came, into the, he came into the role of CIA and became a serious person uh, for 15 months. Uh, learned about the world. Um, I find his strategic thinking to be very, very good. He's obviously leading this effort right now as it relates to North Korea. Um, he, on his, his most recent return, again, nothing substantive has happened yet, but uh, my expectations are that uh, we've got the, my thoughts are that we have the best opportunity we've had in 20 years to change the dynamic. I'll give you one vignette. On his first trip, Pompeo is standing in a window uh, looking outside with Kim Jong-un. The only person there um, is the interpreter. And uh, Kim Jong-un looks at him, he's, and first of all, Pompeo looks out in the sunset, and he said, that's the, the most beautiful sunset I have ever seen in my life. Kim Jong-un, through the translator, says, um, it is, and it's like that here every single night, and that entire shoreline should be lined with nothing but American hotels. And so I do think some of the economic issues that, huh? did that shock you? Yeah, so, so I think some of the economic issues that North Korea is dealing with, um, I think the leader understands that the model they have cannot continue. Um, do I trust that uh, you know, they're going to denuclearize over the next two years? I do not. Uh, do I think the dialogue we're having with them is a good thing? I do. Um, and hopefully at some point we'll get to a place where we're actually talking about substantive uh, denuclearization. But, but I have to say, uh, I'm not much for having press conferences where you don't do much. Um, I, I, I probably wouldn't have been my nature to do what happened in Singapore, but I do think that the door has been opened uh, to some progress that can be obviously very good for our, our world. China. China has backed off recently, which is a little bit concerning. Uh, they're, not, they're not really uh, applying the pressures that they were applying three or four months ago. So that's uh, a little bit of a deterioration. 
but obviously the relations between South and North Korea have improved vastly, and uh, I'm hopeful that over time this is going to be resolved. Yes, ma'am. Two-part question. So the first one, so you, you said that the, the rhetoric is quite different from what actually is happening, but I'm still curious, you know, will we be able to restore our credibility as a predictable and reliable partner looking at uh, exit from Paris Climate Agreement, Iran nuclear deal, Trans-Pacific Partnership? And the second part to this question, you know, China is becoming a bigger concern as it positions itself as a new global leader, economically, <coughs> ideologically. So instead of me building stronger alliance to counterbalance China, I feel like we are standing more and more alone in the world and isolating ourselves. So um, so I would love to hear your uh, opinion on both this question, China's strategy, and how will Will we be able to restore our credibility? Yeah, so look, I, I uh, when, look, when teams of people come in to meet with the president, on many occasions they will come by our office first. Or they'll come by after and debrief. I know when the European Trade Commission was here recently uh, to talk about the tariffs, uh, they came by our office first. By the way, I strongly disagree with what is happening on the tariff issue, as I alluded to on the front end. I don't know why, uh, if you want to put pressure on China for stealing intellectual property, uh, why you would tariff our friends in Europe and the friendliest neighbors anybody could have, Canada and Mexico, to the north and south of us. So none of that makes any sense to me at all. And I haven't ever felt there's been any real strategy to any of this, okay? It's like they make it up. I've said this so many times here, I know it's true. They just make it up as they go along. And there are two people at the White House that to me have been really destructive uh, for our country as it relates to, to sort of putting this thought uh, into action. But here's what happens. Um, I think I think that uh, world leaders are coming to understand our president um, and to, uh, to understand that, that what is said a lot of times is not, is not what is done. Um, and I think their understanding uh, uh, sort of the uh, I want to use words. I don't want to make news right before the election. <laughs> Let me just say this. They understand, I think, uh, the White House. They deal with Pompeo, though. They dealt with Tillerson before. They have tremendous respect for Tillerson, and I think they have respect for Pompeo. They have tremendous respect for, for Jim Mattis. And so they almost view, they look at us still, um, I think as that shining city on the hill, they do. And they look at this period of time uh, as just an anomaly. Okay? I, I don't think they're losing faith in us quite the way people think. Now, um, do, I, do I think it's good for us to go into the NATO thing and chastise everybody publicly? No, I don't. And, and by the way, I was in the Baltics uh, not long ago, and, and for the countries there, it, it does create some fear. They worry, are we going to respond to an Article 5 engagement? The only time it's ever been utilized is obviously to come to our aid after Afghanistan. The only time in the history of NATO that Article 5 has ever been invoked. So 
So I think that, that um, the rhetoric is damaging, but the policies themselves thus far have been somewhat of a continuum. I mean, really, we're doing things with NATO today that are even stronger <coughs> as far as what's actually happening on the ground than, 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 than stronger than has ever happened, actually, as it relates to pushing back against what Russia is doing. Um, on, the, on the Paris Accord, um, look, I think uh, he may ultimately decide to get back into it. It is, I don't say this to be pejorative or to great conflict, but, you know, people should know when you enter into an executive agreement where only one person is agreeing, it's not going to stand long, okay? It's just not in all likelihood. And with the Iran agreement, um, you know, it was our office that actually laid out the three parameters to try to keep ourselves within the Iran agreement, okay? We went over as soon as Tillerson was sworn in. Uh, we've got one of the brightest staffers ever, a guy named David Kinsler, who was on five tours in the Middle East as a Marine. He's now our alleged director, but he handled the Middle East for us in the beginning. And so we laid out the criteria that was accepted by the administration as to what would have to happen to stay within the Iran Agreement. And the most difficult one was doing away with the Sunset Agreement. With well, a big flaw, there were, there were several flaws with the Iran Agreement. But the big flaw was that after year 10, um, they were basically off and running. Now, people on the other side would argue that's not necessarily the case, and Wendy Sherman would argue it until she's blue in the face that that's not the case, but it was pretty much the case. I mean, even President Obama, right after it was signed, on NPR said, look, in year 13, they get down to zero breakout, and, and they could. And so what the administration attempted to do was to, to, to do away with that so that so that we could put sanctions back in place if they ever got below a one-year breakout time. Um, I think we could have done it if it was just up to the United Kingdom and France. Angela Merkel, that just would not go along with that. And so we pulled out of the agreement. Um, I don't know that I've ever said this publicly. Um, I wanted us to stay in, okay? I wanted us to get that sunset agreement because it was a tremendous flaw. But I wanted us to achieve that and to be able to stay in the agreement. Um, I actually think what the president has done, and you know that I'm not shy about criticizing, uh, I actually think what they have done, and I may get tomatoes thrown at me with a group like this, may work out to be better than staying in it, uh, even with the sunset. Um, it's pretty amazing what's happening inside the country right now. Again, it wasn't the position. I was advocating for doing away with the sunset, dealing with ballistic missiles, uh, doing one other thing and staying within the agreement itself. And um, I actually think some of the other countries are beginning to, uh, to have some differing thoughts uh, about the position that we took. Obviously, they were very irate, and you can imagine, they went out and sold them to, to their citizens. You know, as a, as a great deal, and here the United States says, no, it's not, and gets out. Obviously, they were upset. I don't think it's really affected our relations that much. The tariffs have. The tariffs have been a, a, a total loser for us.
Okay, and they continue to be a loser, and they're beginning to have an effect on especially certain industries. Hopefully, never on the auto industry here in our state. So, so um, I think I've answered the first question, right? Um, with China, um, if you remember at the World Economic Forum right after President Trump came in, uh, their leader was out basically stepping in our shoes, wasn't he? Basically, you know, we're the you know, we're, got, we're the globalists now, they're not the globalists. Um, you know, they've got significant issues and they're beginning to play themselves out right now. Okay, they've got 300% debt to GDP. I mean, they've got, uh, we're not in great shape ourselves with Jim Cooper will attest, but not near that. And so, um, I, I actually think that because of domestic issues and because other countries around the world realize the Chinese model, which is very different than ours, you know, when we go into a country, an African country, where people have HIV or we're trying to deal with malaria, I mean, we really are going in to, to help people. I mean, that's the most meaningful part of my particular job, is, is championing these things that we're doing that are actually saving people's lives. China goes in with a whole different uh, view, okay? They want to they leverage these countries up put in place projects, in some cases that only benefit the countries, knowing that the countries will not be able to pay the money back, and what's going to happen is China's going to end up owning those assets or having a very permanent position in those countries that makes them uh, very dependent upon China. So these countries are beginning to figure this out, okay, and, and now they're beginning to look to other places. We were able to just pass a bill that led through our committee called the Build Act, which refashions OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, doubles its capacity and allows it to actually uh, put in private equity uh, into efforts in, in countries uh, to cause them, again, to be a little bit more sustainable. So again, the rhetoric, the view, the perceptions uh, are not particularly good right now. And I can be very critical of, of certain things, but generally speaking, I don't think it's quite as bad as, as people are laying out. I don't. I, I would not be speaking in the same manner. I would not approach things to try to win by dividing. I would never do any of those things. I'm just speaking now strictly about the foreign policy piece. Okay? Yes, sir. My question is about our allies that we have. Of course, England, Germany, France, biggest economies in the world, you put them in with the American economy. When we look at what's happening in the Americas, we know about national and Mexico. But Brazil, at one point, was headed to be the fifth largest economy in the world. And what we have a political policy to do with South America and Brazil? Yeah, we. Uh, So, uh, there was an announcement, uh, a low-level kind of announcement that came out about nine months ago where we were going to be seeing a huge focus on the Western Hemisphere. Um, that has not yet materialized, but I think people are realizing that, look, how fortunate could you be to be the United States of America with two oceans on either side of us and two very friendly neighbors? Uh, Above us and below. I mean, it's just it's, it's nothing like the countries in Europe and other places, and even South America deal with. We don't really have 
a real policy to answer your question as it relates to Brazil. Uh, we actually are talking, this again, I get back to the rhetoric. Uh, look, we have tremendous issues in Central America right now, right? I mean, these, these, uh, we had a staffer uh, down for about a week, a month ago. Uh, we have some unbelievable people who work on our staff who have like decades of relationships. And, you know, I think you know I've been down in Venezuela on two clandestine trips recently. Uh, clandestine meaning private, not bad. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it's really because of the relationships that so many of our staff people have. And we had a staffer down there working with Ortegas uh, for a week in the Catholic Church to try to keep what's happening there from happening. Uh, when we talk about people coming up in a caravan to the United States and how if they come, if the country's let them come, we ought, we're going to cut off aid. That's the opposite of what needs to happen. I mean, the, the real emphasis on Central America should be help, helping them route out corruption, helping them build democratic institutions, helping them uh, solve their own problems. And there is an emphasis on that in Congress. Okay, but we again. Let, let me. Let me. You know, somebody asked me a question the other day. Hey, Corker, uh, uh, what did you? What do you know now that you? didn't know when you came into office. And I don't know why it's a Saturday morning and I'm not thinking clearly. I, I, I said, well, not much. But let me, let me, let me tell, you, tell me what the answer would be today uh, on, a, on a Wednesday. Uh, I had no idea. I had no idea uh, the importance of the United States to the rest of the world. I knew it, but I didn't really know it. And, you know, we focus on ourselves because that's, who, that's what Americans do. You know, we're, we're very inwardly focused. Everybody else in the world focuses on the United States. And, you know, when you travel, you understand they know so much about, so much more about the world than most Americans do. But I used to think it was solely because we were so self-focused that we focused on the United States and, and wondered why other people focus so much on it. The fact is, the United, the world does revolve around the United States. I'm sorry. I mean, that's a little bit of an overstatement. But what we do impacts the world. You, you can't imagine how people hang on the words and hang on the what it is we do. The second piece I'm coming to to answer your question. I had no idea how much the executive branch and the president dwarfs everything else. I mean, we've had for decades now, uh, you know, we've got a divided country. Congress has been unable to come together on the big issues. And so what happens when we're unable to solve the big issues that our nation is dealing with, the executive branch just gets more and more powerful. More and more is done through executive fiat. More and more is done through executive orders. More and more is done just by them being able to do and Congress not being able to challenge. So Congress has efforts underway as it relates to Central America and some parts, some parts of South America, not much. The executive branch right now does not have a policy towards that area and we really need to focus on it. Yes. Senator, uh, a lot can be said about Saudi Arabia, its record on terrorism, <coughs> the Khashoggi killing, its leadership, Yemen, 
potential conflict with Iran. Tell me your views about Saudi Arabia with all the issues there from its leadership to Iran to Yemen, terrorism, the Khashoggi killing. What should we be doing there if we're not? Yeah, so MBS, Crown Prince, um, if he were in this room today uh, and he gave up and gave the kind of presentation that I'm giving, uh, he would be totally awed. Um, he's 33 now. I met him when he was 32. Um, he speaks about economics in a way that you would think absolutely Harvard MBA and, and running a Fortune 100 country. Uh, company. He uh, can speak about geopolitics, geopolitics. He talks about the domestic issues and opening up. He he is pushing back against the Wahhabists within the country that want to keep it as it is and not progress. Uh, and so let me just tell you again: if you had him in here, maybe you ought to have him sometime. He's a little tied up right now, I think. Um, but he is a, a very impressive individual to sit down and talk to. Um, at the same time, he's brutal. Um, I, uh, after he was given this job by his dad, who, by the way, is uh, you know I read this morning in the Wall Street Journal that that you know that the king is now taking over some of the powers. Let me tell you, the guy's not, not with it, so I hope that's not the case, okay? I mean, he's mostly incoherent. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, you have a situation where, in Saudi Arabia, where, yes, you have a king, uh, but he's not, he's not all there. It's going to happen to all of us at some point, but he's not, he's just not all there. And so, the king stepping in is not real. Uh, so you've got this person they've put uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous faith in. Um, so he comes into office, he immediately turns the Ritz-Carlton into a detention facility, moved the furniture out, tortured people. Um, it was uh, in, the, in the name of anti-corruption. Uh, I'm sure that some of the people there uh, got some of their riches through corruption. I don't know if that's all that was happening there, but my point is it was brutal, and I think they, uh, my understanding the number was north of $100 billion that they were able to, to take out of the Ritz-Carlton events. It was brutal. Uh, Hariri, who's the Prime Minister of Lebanon, a friend of mine, in Lebanon you've got a confessional government where the President is Christian, the Prime Minister is Sunni, and the Speaker of the House is Shia. Harari's got uh, construction interest in Saudi Arabia, and his wife actually lives in Saudi Arabia, so they've got a little bit of control over him, if you will. They arrested him. They didn't like this crown prince, uh, arrested him because he didn't like the way he was carrying out his duties as the Sunni leader in Lebanon. That's, that's pretty weird, okay, to arrest the Prime Minister of another country. Um, we had the big summit in Riyadh. Uh, I was not there, but there was a big summit in Riyadh. Uh, MBS gets, to, gets together with MBZ of the UAE, and immediately after the summit, after you know uh, this unification had taken place, they blockade Qatar. 
it was crazy what they did in that they had no idea what they even wanted and it was us pushing them uh, actually our office uh, and our office pushing them and our office pushing the administration hey give us a list what are the where are the demands of your block 80 telling us you know, they couldn't even come up with a, it took them like three weeks to come up with a list of items that they wanted uh, Cutter to undertake. So it was a tremendous rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. And then now you take uh, what's happening, uh, what's happened with the journalist. Uh, I haven't seen any intel in the last week and a half because we've been out of Washington uh, here because of the elections. Uh, look, do I think that he ordered it based on what I've read? Absolutely. Uh, do I think they sent people in to, to murder him? Absolutely. Uh, do I think that some accident took place? Absolutely not. Um, I called the ambassador. Uh, I got a call from, uh, I guess we understood the journalist was missing for about three hours, and so I immediately called the ambassador of Saudi Arabia, who I guess is a half-brother of the Crown Prince. Not particularly impressive. Um, and I said, look, uh, uh, if, if there's a tape going in, I know if you say he left, which is what they said immediately, that he left the compound, you have to have a tape of him leaving. And uh, he said, well, Senator Corker, our, our AV system works a little differently. We, we only live stream, we don't record. And I said, look, that doesn't pass the laugh, laugh test, uh, you know, if, if he, you know, you obviously need to produce the tapes, or I think we, we feel something else has happened. So, so look, it's a, uh, Saudi Arabia is a country that uh, on one hand needs for the progress to take place that he's been laying out. It needs to diversify economically. Um, but it's a, it's a country that we've put way too much uh, stock in. They're, they're, uh, what they're doing in Yemen, uh, you know, we've given them precision-guided missiles to try to keep them from killing people in the manner that they are, and they haven't been able to operate those effectively. We've got one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the world happening there right now where people are dying of diseases that are just easily preventable. And so they've been a, a bad actor there, in fairness. The Houthis are supported by Iran, and so, you know, they haven't been good actors. They didn't show up at the last negotiation that was taking place to try to ease tensions there. And, you know, after us not performing perfectly ourselves in some of the Middle East things, it's difficult to overjudge, but they have been a, they have been a counter to Iran. They don't compare to Iran. I mean, to think that militarily they're nothing compared to Iran, but we've They've, uh, so look, they're, they're, a, they're, a, they're a country that's relatively important, not hugely important, relatively important. We need to see them for who they are. We certainly need to mete out justice as it relates to this journalist, no matter where that takes us. And I think we need to realize that while we share some interests, um, we're also going to have some significant differences. And this could be a line of demarcation as it relates to carrying those out. Well, that, Good enough? Yes, sir. Senator, um, go back to politics for a minute. Lucky for us that you're not running, so I can ask this question. So I, I preface it with that. Uh, in, in the light of the way you answered uh, some of the questions about look at the actions of what we're doing, not the rhetoric, and I know the 
code word for rhetoric is Trump's rhetoric, okay? At least from the perspective of where I, I sit. With the, the events of the last couple of weeks and the lack of civility that we have in our politics, after the election, do you think that certain leaders set Trump aside within the Congress can take the mantle and talk about that words do have it cause actions. And those of us that fashion that we like history and we think about history, you know, the, the, the late 20s and 30s, some of the same tone of rhetoric that we heard in the populace in some of these countries, particularly in Europe and in our country as well, took the position that look at the actions, not what's being said. And over time, yeah. the rhetoric, rhetoric uh, diminished uh, and, and took over the actions, and then we know what, what occurred. So, do you think that that, that we we can have a, a dialogue and leadership in this country, and particularly from the Republican Party? Uh, that and, and you know how you know personally I feel about the Republican Party, you know, in support of it. But it, it is time, and I that hopefully we can have the, the appropriate dialogue and civility so that the leadership can, can speak to the issues and the tragedies of the last 10 days. Yeah. So I, I don't know of anyone in the United States Senate that's been more outspoken than myself over especially the domestic rhetoric. I'm really speaking more to the foreign policy rhetoric a minute ago. I was actually speaking solely to that. Um, look, I we have some media people here today. Uh, certainly not saying this for their benefit, but uh, I strongly, strongly support our media. I mean, I, I do. I actually enjoy working with them. Uh, and anything we do to diminish the media, anything we do to diminish the media, we. We, we, we diminish our country because people lose faith. Now, the media owns some of that, okay, but they own some of that. They do, and, and what's happening in social media now where these, these stories get trending and, and the, you know, the New York Times or someone sees a trending story and they're worried they're going to miss out or I, I shouldn't have mentioned them, some other paper or whatever, uh, once it gets written in a normal paper, a normal paper, Unfortunately, these stories make it in, then all of a sudden it's okay to put on television, right? And so the bashing of our media to, men, to me is, is something that I've, I've used these words before. I've been in Venezuela. They, <laughs> you, when you get where you don't trust the media at all, you're taking steps in that direction. When you start talking about destroying the institutions of government, or you are destroying the institutions of government rhetorically, whether it's Department of Justice or the FBI, they make mistakes. They make mistakes. Every, every agency makes mistakes. But when you start causing the American people to lose faith in the Justice Department or the FBI, or think that somehow or another what is being done is being done for political reasons, you're moving towards, again, a country. You're, you're moving in the direction of the country like I just mentioned. So um, I, uh, I absolutely uh, hold that in disdain. And, and, and 
and think it is bad for our country. And yet, I think more and more people continue to be, we had the conversation about in the car uh, coming over here, people are becoming almost entertained by it now. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and it is dangerous. Do I think that anybody in the Senate, uh, I, look, I'm, I'm just, I talked about the dwarfing. The dwarfing of power is one thing. The dwarfing of the microphone is 2x, 3x. I mean, when the president speaks, uh, it drowns out. Uh, and like, look, I've been glad to speak out on these things, and, and, and it's not pleasant. I'm not a negative person. I'm not a negative person. I don't like saying things that are critical of other people. It doesn't bring me joy, okay? But, 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 but you know, uh, yeah, the voices uh, should be heard. Do I think it's going to change the rhetoric at all over the next two years? Littman, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, I, I don't. I think it's going to get worse. Um, I've been reading editorials recently where, um, you know, people... Uh, people who are running for president on the left side uh, now think that in order to compete with what's happening, they've got to do the same thing, right? And so um, I, I don't, uh, I think that at the end of the day, it's the people of our country. Yeah, senators can speak out and obviously it, it gets the attention of the White House when one does so. But, but I think at the end of the day, the American people are going to have to tire of the rhetoric and are going to have to elect people that, uh, that are not uh, jack-in-the-box people who just say yes to whatever it is that uh, you know, the commander-in-chief has to say. I, I, don't, I don't think those voices are going to, I hate to be so negative, but I, I just don't, I'm a, I'm a realist, I don't see that changing over the next couple of years, I just don't. Um, and when your governing model is division, and it is, okay, that's, that's, not, that's, not, like, that's not like me thinking that's the governing model. When the governing model is to pit one side against the other, um, and that's the current governing model, and you've got a, a presidential election coming up in 2020, and if, if the incumbent runs uh, again, which like looks like it's going to be the case. I just I, I don't see that rhetoric changing, and I don't see a person standing up in the Senate affecting that to a degree. Sure, they should do it, but is it going to affect the way the American people think about it? I don't think so. Yes. Sir. One more question. You One of the reasons uh, he was talking about the interchange between the Gulf states, in particular the Saudis, look at that file is Jared Kushner's file. He's been working on the, the, the whole Israeli issue from the day he got there. He came over uh, about uh, three and a half weeks ago and sat down with uh, myself, Menendez, Cardin, Graham. Uh, I don't know, three or four other sort of foreign policy oriented folks and, 
at a high level kind of laid out. They obviously don't want anything leaking out at a high level. Talk a little bit about where their focus was. And I think they plan to come back right after the election and lay out the details of where they want to go with the peace plan. Um, Saudi Arabia's played a huge role. And that's one of the reasons you're seeing the rhetoric be a little bit timid coming out of the White House uh, as it relates to the journalists. But no, I mean, this has been, you know, Saudi Arabia has been sort of the centerpiece of making sure that the, that the Arab world is, is, is okay with what's happening. And I'm gonna say something again to this group and they get tomatoes thrown at me. I don't think that the whole Israeli-Palestinian issue is near the issue that, that it used to be or is made out to be. Whenever, when people say that it's the genesis of everything that's happening in, uh, in, in the Middle East, I'm sorry, it's just not true. It's just not true. It's a big issue at the UN. It's a big issue to European countries. Is it, is it a big issue, really, to the Gulf states and other people? No. I mean, privately, they talk very differently than they talk publicly. They have a domestic population of people that they have to, you know, deal with. So um, the fact is that, yes, Saudi Arabia, you, you, before the, the embassy was moved to Jerusalem, you don't think that uh, there were multiple, multiple conversations Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, with everyone else about what was going on. They knew there was going to be some rhetorical comments about that happening in their own countries, but there really was almost no pushback. Almost no pushback. So uh, they have been key to this. They have played an important role. Um, and that's one of the reasons, again, that uh, if I answered the question fully, I would say that it's actually, it's almost, this is a slight exaggeration, I don't want to diminish the other countries, but it's almost been a negotiation with Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's a slight overstatement for me, if we so like that, quite that way. It's a little bit of an overstatement, but they have a key to this whole thing. Pat, the last question. Quick, quick softball. Senator, thanks again for your support to our students who come to Washington. Uh, we're trying to make a, an impact in the community and, and as far as global affairs awareness, uh, but sometimes it's a hard sell uh, with, with a lot of people. We frequently quote Thomas Jefferson that no nation can live in ignorance with impunity. We'd like to freshen up the slogan a little bit. Is there a Senator Bob Corker uh, sentiment about the importance of global affairs awareness uh, among people in the, the community? Yeah, so look, I. Uh I'm a person who used to go to shopping centers around our country. And it's a mayor of the city. And I went on the Foreign Relations Committee not because of a deep interest uh, in, in history. I'm kind of a journeyman, kind of person. Not because of anything other than I wanted to be the best senator that I could be for Tennessee. And I felt like having additional knowledge in foreign policy would help me be the kind of senator that people here in our state would like to have. I camped on the committee. Uh, I traveled extensively, 78 or 9 countries. Uh, I became really energized uh, in the New START Treaty negotiations where I really feel like that with President Obama as president, 
uh, and the feelings that Republicans had towards him at the time, I really felt like I, I'm bragging a little bit, but I think my efforts passed the SAR tree, okay? And I'm proud of that. Um, I was able to get two amendments in there that helped us as it relates to missile defense and helped us as to the actual dealing with our nuclear arsenal in a way that needed to be dealt with, but, but I really, that really engaged me and then went on to be chairman and have dealt with multiple issues since. Um, but I do think that uh, especially in the asymmetric kind of world we're living in, uh, you know, people used to, the Cold War was one thing, you know, people understood that, the Cold War was us and them, and if you were either with us or you're with them, the, the world's so much more complicated now. And many of you are involved in businesses that deal uh, around the world. Um, I think it's incredibly important, uh, especially when, what is it we fear most? I mean, we, 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 what we don't want to have happen is another episode where we're drawn into something that turns into to World War III. That's not what we want to have happen as a nation. And I think to have informed citizens who are able to recognize when we're moving down a path uh, that could lead to some place, having informed citizens that are not just taking what is being uh, recited to them by our Commander-in-Chief or by news outlets, I think is very, very important, especially in this time right now uh, when the world is so chopped up in differing centers of power and the fact that likely uh, at some point in time, uh, if things continue as they are, and they may not, uh, we may not be, uh, uh, we may not be the largest economically oriented uh, country in the world. So, yes, sir. Okay, well, Senator Corker. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit T.